Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. Um, and so now's the time to, to begin uh, looking at The Divine Invasion um, by Philip K. Dick. Uh, this novel was uh, a sequel to, to Vallis. It was written, I think, about a year after Vallis was written. It was written fairly quickly in just uh, two months. And, but it was published in, in pretty much the same year as Vallis. Vallis came out in... in 1981, and then Divine Invasion came out later that year. So these were written, these were published and basically conceived and written very close to each other. They deal with a lot of the same themes. Um, it is indeed a sequel of sorts. Now we don't have the same characters or even the same setting. Uh, Val is set in like 19, 1970s and 1980s, early 1980s, and the main character is Philip K. Dick, and it's kind of a more autobiographical approach of his, you know, of, of his experiences and it, it kind of does end with failure and there's some hope uh, that in the end those characters will find will find the savior but um you know it's not guaranteed it's, it's just kind of an open-ended search at the end of that novel in divine invasion it works as a sequel uh, not because we carry on with the characters but because we we assume that that quest essentially failed or that savior never came and that the world that the human be humanity remains in the black iron prison for for the foreseeable future right so it's set sometime you know centuries in the future so this is a science fiction novel and it's kind of his last science fiction novel transmigration of timothy archer the final novel he wrote um in his lifetime um the final one he that did it come out during his lifetime or did it come out right after he died it came out in in 1982 that novel, it, it might be technically posthumously published. I'll have to look up the, the date. But that one, it has some kind of quirky elements, some, some New Age occultist kind of elements in it, uh, New Age religion stuff. You know, So maybe you want to see it as speculative fiction of some degree. It's not like straight up science fiction. It, it's closer to a mainstream novel. It's closer to Confessions of a Crap Artist than it is to this. Um, so the you can look at The Divine Invasion as his last um, pure science fiction novel, but it's also using his skills as a science fiction writer to explore themes of, of, of religion and to explore some of the same ideas. So essentially, the world remains under this fog of false reality. Now, I'll give you my overall thoughts on this first. Uh, like Vallis, and I really, it's really hard to not look at these books together. I think Transmigration of Timothy Archer can be kind of taken on its own and evaluated on its own a little bit differently. These are so thematically tied. You have the pink beam there. You have the concept of the black iron prison. You have the concept of the need for a savior to come and, and kind of liberate humanity from this fog they're under. You have uh, kind of playing with the false realities. You have a child savior in both novels. Um, you have a uh, you even have Valis talked about in the Divine Invasion, although, you know, it's just kind of mentioned here. So it's in the same universe, and they really are linked together. I'm I don't like this novel at all. I I 
I don't know. I don't even know if I want to say it's his worst. It's it's my least favorite to go back to and my least favorite of his to read. I, I don't get any pleasure out of reading it. It has no humor. It's it's got some quirkiness and weirdness in it, but even Vallis, because it's it's so weighted with that kind of weird theology, that at least is is kind of interesting to think this kind of guy's going nuts and let's see what he's 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 reading about and what he's thinking about what he's writing about i mean you know i I think i talked in the previous episode it's kind of like sitting at a a bar maybe overhearing some nut talking about his nutty experiences and how he's interpreting it you know you may not buy any of that and take away anything meaningful from that but it's kind of a enjoyable experience to watch and observe the divine invasion is Part of it is just like boring retelling of the Jesus story where you've got like the virgin birth and you've got the vo- the traveling to essentially Egypt and you have the, the child in hiding. You have the child giving spiritual lessons to elders, teach them the right way. Um, you got, but then it's mixed with some other like Egyptian theology. But again, it's just kind of retelling Egyptian theology. He doesn't invent anything here. At least in Valis, he's being more creative. In this novel, he takes some of his ideas and he just kind of ham-fists it into some really conventional, um, a really conventional retelling of the Jesus story. At least that's the first half. It gets a little bit more interesting maybe in the, in the second half. But by this point, you're so bored, you don't really want to read too much more and it, and it, and it kind of loses some of his punch. So I, you know, I, I kind of struggle with this novel i struggle what to make of it um, partially because it's just so heavy with with god talk that's not interesting it's just not fun in any way and and often you don't really know what's going on and it's it's kind of a labor to to read a novel like this now what it comes down to is you have characters in in the Black Iron Prison, coming to know God in various ways. There's characters who come to know God kind of through the state and through the institution. There's characters who come to know God directly. Um, some who come to it through kind of no stories and knowledge and things like that that they read. Um, of course, the right answer is to get it kind of the Gnostically, and that's how our main character Herb, it's a Herb Archer. Yeah, that's his name. Herb Archer. So what's with these names? Maybe someone could tell me. So you got Herb Archer. Then you got Timothy. Um, Ar- oh, so it's Herb Asher. Sorry. Herb Asher. Then it's Timothy Archer. And sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm confusing all of these. Herb Actor in The Divine Invasion. Timothy Archer in The Transmigration of Timothy Archer. And then you have Bob Archer in A Scanner Darkly. Right. So. I, so forgive me if I if I slip back and forth, but there's something about that sound maybe that really attracted Dick at this time of his career. A lot of you know, four of his or three of his last four novels all have that short two two syllable a a name uh, for for the main character. But um, anyways, he gets his knowledge of God kind of gnostically through direct revelation or connection with God. That's the right way. Other people get it through institutions and that's the wrong way. Um, so, but you do have a kind of a religious world. You have a universe where religion is known, but of course most people, because they get it through the state essentially, or get it through the institutions of conventional, in this case, it's not Christianity, it's the Christian Islamic church. They have unified at some point and they kind of tell people what to believe. And of course that's merely a, that's actually the institution of, of Belial. 
the, the bad guy, the devil, essentially. Um, although he uses Belial in this novel to to personify this evil trickster god that's kind of throwing the the black iron prison over us. So there is a, a conversation about the state, about the institutions, but it's all to service just this idea that we're all under this this cloud. Now Yahweh. Yah, as he called it in the novel, has been exiled, so he can only really talk to the directly with the frontiers people, and that's who our main, who our main characters are at the beginning of the novel. They're on the frontier. That said, I mean, there's not that much state about the frontier here. It, it's it's kind of a bleak, boring frontier, but it's it's where God can be achieved. So this narrative of kind of help coming from the outside, whether it's Valis or the kind of the knowledge of Valis, the Pink Beam, or the friends from Frolox Eight. Or in this case, um, literally God uh, coming in the form of a of a pregnant woman, of a, of a fetus in, a, in the womb of a, of a pregnant woman. You know, it's all kind of the help from the outside. So the frontier becomes not a place for rebirth, as we talked about in a lot of Dick's novels of the 50s, where the frontier is a place for rebirth. Now it's just a, a source of some, you know, kind of a deus ex machina that's going to come and, and, and save the world. Um, that said, you don't really know if humanity is saved at the end of the novel because we're told at the end that essentially this is an individual experience that people go through where they're given a choice to choose Belial or choose good, choose God um, as part of the judgment, right? And so there's a lot of talk here about the afterlife and the judgment and, and, the, and the wane of the heart, you know, how the Egyptian, I think it's Egyptian theology, you know, when you die... They weigh your heart versus the feather, right? Or um, the the idea of rede a redeemer who will will kind of carry your sins for you. That's the kind of the more Christian idea that's played with here too, um, and it's all personified in different characters who show into the in, in and out in the novel. And yeah, so you so you kind of read in the story, and pretty early on you realize that everyone has a has their kind of role in the theology in the theological system he's building. So really, a lot of the time you spend thinking like, well, who's this? Who is this supposed to be? Which character is Elijah? Which character is Belial? Which character is is really Yahweh or, or whatever? You know, it's kind of all you have all these avatars at work here, and so there's not really that many relatable human characters here. Um, our hero, the one who's instigating this divine invasion, this young boy, is is kind of annoying. He is always lecturing to people about theology, and you know, I guess. Ten-year-olds can be annoying, but they're especially annoying when they're they're telling you you're reading the Bible wrong or your your understanding of the divine is wrong. It's and and that's supposed to be our main character. Herb Archer is Herb Ar Asher. Sorry, Herb Asher is maybe the most interesting character in this novel. Um, in that he's just kind of a, a, a typical Dick, Philip Dick Philip K. Dick hero. He's like a he he works with like sound systems and he's a bit of a DJ on the all, that kind of on the colonies. Later on, he's in a different reality. He's he's on Earth and he's setting up sound systems. He loves classical music, so he's very much a you know got a lot of the checks a lot of the boxes of what a Philip K. Dick character will be like. He's got a marriage just falling apart in one of the realities that he exists in. Um, in another, he's kind of forced into a marriage almost. So there's a little bit here about marriage. So some. Um, some things we can say about that here. Um, the dystopia is pretty bland. It's it's one of his least memorable ones. It's just the the Communist Party and the and the Christian 
Islamic church kind of dominate society and, and control everything. And that, that's pretty much all there is to it. We don't get that much detail, even though we meet some of the, the heads of this. You know, they're just there to serve uh, this kind of um, allegory that Dick's trying to tell. And again, it's the vast majority of the novel, more than half of it, is simply the Jesus story being told um, of, you know, the, the virgin birth and the, the, the journey, the smuggling him into Egypt. In this case, it's smuggling him into Earth, from which he can then be the savior. And then you got the state who's trying to kill the baby and trying to stop this, trying to force an abortion, just like you have with, is it King Herod who slaughtered all the, the kids in the, in the Bible story of Jesus' birth? All that stuff is just sort of being retold here. And like I said, by, by the time you get to Dick actually innovating and doing something a little bit different, you're, you're already pretty bored and, and it doesn't really work. So I, I'm sorry to say this. This, is, this really is one of my least favorite um, Philip K. Dick novels. Um, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but I am going to do what I did with Phallus and that I'm going to give you the, the rough plot, kind of the play-by-play. -play. It's got 20 chapters. I'm not going to go into detail and, and do chapter-by-chapter -chapter analysis like I normally do. Instead, I'm going to uh, talk about the, the overall plot, um, kind of give you a rundown, kind of review uh, some of the aspects of the novel then, um, as I did with Phallus. In this case, I'll talk about the theology. I'll talk about the, the symbolism of the characters a little bit. I'll talk about uh, the salvation, the different models of salvation that are played with. And I might talk a little bit about dystopia and, and marriage and then go over some of the other themes that I think are happen to be in this, this novel. So I know a lot of people like this story and uh, for you know, and I would love to hear why why you might like this one. Um, I actually, as much as I don't like Valis, I like Valis a lot more than this one because Valis at least has some fun in it. This one is just so bleak. The characters are so sad and everyone's so miserable. And it's, you know, and no one really has any autonomy. They're just going through these motions. And at the end of the day, everything's revealed just to be like the workings of, of, of Yah, of, of God. And so I don't care, really, at that point. I, if we don't live in a world in which Yah is going to come down and, and save us, it, you know, if there is false realities out there, if there is a, if we are in a black iron prison, it's because powerful people have created that. Capitalism has created it. Our, our political systems have. And to some degree, we are deluded by those institutions. But salvation from that is not going to come from some savior or some knowledge or some pink beam. And, and, I really want to ask the people who like this part of Dick's writing to explain to me what's the solution in, in our real world. Unless you're going to sit around waiting for the pink beam to talk to you. And even if it does, even if that's the solution, it's still at the end of the day, as we learn in this novel, we have to wait for Yaw to impregnate a virgin and send the savior down to, you know, to liberate us. Right. And then even in that case, you know, this so-called divine invasion, this character Emmanuel doesn't do that much on Earth. The, save, the salvation actually comes from another character who is able to do more. So it, it's very muddled and it's, um, I just get the feeling that the characters, the human characters, the, the actual real characters who have depth of some sort, not that aren't just avatars or allegories. They're just kind of getting pulled through uh, this story. And I don't know, maybe it works better as, as almost like a, a pre-modern story. I mean, this is the kind of novel that, or I guess they didn't have novels back then, but a story written in kind of the pre-modern times 
right? Where characters are, you know, are all, you know, all allegorical, almost like mythology. And maybe that's the best way to talk about this novel as, 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 as a myth rather than as a novel. As a novel, it doesn't work for me in any way. But maybe as myth, it, it has some value. But yeah, I mean, just read the original myths if you want to do that. If, if you're interested in the Egyptian gods' view of, of, of theology, do that. Or, or, you know, read Neil Gaiman. I mean, he, he does this stuff a lot better than, than Dick does here. Um, so I don't know. Um, um, that's my opening thoughts. But I'm like with the last one, I'm going to sit down and kind of skim through it again and, and, and write down my thoughts. So take a little, I'll take a little bit of break. I'll, I'll, I'll sketch my thoughts down and I'll write it. I'll, I'll write out some basic notes and, and then come back and share my, my final thoughts about this. But these are my initial thoughts after having read the, uh, the entire novel, novel again. But yeah, it's, it's going to take me a while to finally put together my thoughts, but I wanted to jot down my initial thinking. Um, and then I'll come back and I'll just, just add to this recording a little bit later. Okay, then, the plot of the divine invasion. Um, there's a lot going on in this novel, and um, there's a lot of, like, switching uh, between time timelines, and it's a bit confusing, and, you know, for all the work that you have to kind of put into this novel to, to kind of piece it all together, I don't really think it's worth it, but um, to make it easier, I'm going to try to go through the, the, the key points in this novel. Um, so you, kind of, so you kind of start to know what's going on, and, and it'll be some foundation for some other analyses we can do. And so as we open up, this guy, uh, Elias Tate, uh, an old man, is bringing a, a, like a, a, a young kid, Manny, or full name Emmanuel, to like a state school for like the mandatory education, and he's being enrolled in the school. Um, and meanwhile, Herb Asher, who is Emmanuel's father, uh, at least legal father, um, I think he's introduced to the point just as his father, uh, is in some kind of chronic suspension since his accident. He's been waiting for an organ. He's been waiting an exceptionally long period of time. So there's some little suggestion that the, the perception of, of, of availability of organs is less than what really is there, or maybe those from government manipulation. Anyway, so that's all set like in, in our time, or not in our time, but the, 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 the present, present day from the novel's point of view. Uh, then we spent a lot of time in the past, and um, so we, we'll go back to so Herb Asher, who's kind of in this chronic suspension, which kind of exists a little, a little bit like Half-Life almost, because he seems to have some consciousness and he can have dreams and things. So he's thinking back to his time on an outer colony, and he really in, he's kind of involved in almost kind of like radio, to like present, playing music and things. And he he's listening to Linda Fox, who's a, a famous... Uh, well, no, not been a coming singer anyways. Now, it turns out that Linda Fox is actually a creation by the government. So she's actually just like a composite uh, celebrity, which is a really interesting idea, the idea of, a, of government creating the ideal celebrity to, to attract people or to attract certain people and, and, and kind of uh, subdue them or, or, or control them or whatever. Um, now, while he's out at this colony, living his boring life alone, they all live in these different pods, he meets Ribus Ram, Ram, Rami. And she lives in another pod. And she, it turns out, is sick from MS. And she's undergoing chemotherapy for the MS, which is making her hair fall out. And she's really sickly. And so she's not doing that well. 
Um, now, after they meet and they talk a lot, and they end up talking, of course, about God. And what, like Vallis, this novel has a lot of God talk and a lot of characters just talking about theology, talking about the afterlife, talking about the role of God, talking about the problem of evil or whatever. And if you were bored by that stuff in Vallis, you're not going to like it anymore in The Divine Invasion. <clears throat> so anyways, Herb Asher gets a message from essentially God, Yah, Y-A-H. Um, and he tells him that he's kind of, he's got a duty to take care of Ribus. And as he does this, they start to get close, and Ribus at one point makes him dinner one day, and that's, that's a major event that starts to bring them closer and closer together. And they begin to discuss theology, and the nature of God, and the name of God, and the Bible, and all this stuff. And we get a little bit about the, the thing, you know, the, where humans are religiously at this point. Um, you know, Herb is a member of the Christian Islamic Church, CIC. And it seems most humans are members of this church. So the monotheistic traditions have sort of unified under this Christian Islamic church. Now, in practice, it, it feels like it's essentially just the Roman Catholic church. It's got cardinals. It, it has church hierarchy. Islam doesn't have that same kind of church hierarchy. So once again, I, I, I think Dick doesn't know that much about Islam or didn't know that much about Islam. And <clears throat> when he tries to talk about it, the few times he does, he doesn't do that well. Of a job, doesn't do that good of a job with it. Um, it came up just a little bit in Eye in the Sky, but there actually it was uh, Babism, right? Baha'i faith, um, second Babism in particular. So he doesn't really do much with Islam in his work, so I don't want to make a big deal of it. But the, the, it essentially looks like the Christian church has engulfed the, the you know, Islamic faith, and but kept its name, which of course is, is kind of a not an uncommon thing to happen when to merge, right? One identity will be stronger, but you just might keep some characteristics of the other one as, as superficially. Now, Ribus, though, is more heterodox, and, and she doesn't really follow the doctrine of the church, and she's got a lot more of her own ideas about religion. So Yah continues to push Herb to help Ribus, and we really got to focus here in this part of the novel on the power of God, the power of like divine command, the nature of God to direct people to do his will, to fulfill his will. Now, Herb eventually introduces Ribus to Elias Tate, who's a really, really old man. He's the guy we met at the beginning with, with Emmanuel. He's essentially Elijah, and all these characters are, are, basically have biblical uh, or religious roles. Um, they're all like essentially avatars of, of figures. The whole first half of the novel is essentially a retelling of the, of the Christ story, of the, the, you know, the birth of Christ and the flight to Egypt. It's, the only difference is... Manny's in the womb instead of like a little baby that they're holding. Um, but anyway, so he introduces Ribus to Elias Tate. Now this allows Dick to then go back to the present. So we're reintroduced to present-day Emmanuel, who meets Zena Pallas, who's another girl uh, at the school. And they also get into theological discussions and talk about God and talk about religion and all that. Of course, Emmanuel is God. Emmanuel is, is an avatar of God, the, you know, essentially Jesus. Um, and they discuss life and death and purpose quite a lot. And of course, this is kind of the, at this point, we're, we're kind of entering into the other part of the Jesus story where, of course, you have Jesus coming to know who he is, coming to know he's God, gets his, his, his temptation as part of that. And, and that's all hinted at in this, this part of the, the story as well. Um, so she shows him a word, though, Haya, H-A-Y-A-H. And this sort of awakens him to who he is. So this is the equivalent of like the pink beam in Vallis. It's something that awakens a character into full knowledge of, of his place and his existence and what he's about. 
Um, so anyways, back into the past, Elias Tate discusses Ribus's pregnancy, and she turns out she's got a virgin pregnancy, right? Which, of course, is hinted at by, you know, we got God talking to him. I think she's even talked to by some avatar or element, some divine element to tell her about the pregnancy. Uh, and Elias Tate's advice is for them to return to Earth. And he feels that this baby uh, that will be born will liberate Earth from the quote-unquote zone of evil that has surrounded the Earth for over 2,000 years. So specifically after the fall of Jerusalem, this is again stuff in Valis, that since the fall of Jerusalem, people on Earth have been living in a false reality. You know, the empire never ended. You know, there's still the Black Iron Prison, all the different ways he talks about that. That's existing in this world and it's continued. And the, then the duty, the role of this divine invasion, the role of this returning of Manny to Earth is somehow to lift Earth from the zone of evil, which is being maintained by Belial. So Belial is the kind of demonic entity that's been imposing this zone of evil over Earth. Um, Raya, Ribus, though, feels great despair over this, this mission. She doesn't really think she has much hope. And she's got despair overall for existence. And then she feels kind of tied between the brutality of the world and the kind of this divine command that's seeming to enslave her. She says, it, but it's brutal. Speaking of monotheism, it's brutal. What happens to me is brutal. And there's more ahead. I want out and I can't get out. Nobody asked me originally. Nobody is asking me now. Yah, Yah focuses on what lies ahead, but I don't. Accepting that there's more cruelty and pain in throwing up. Serving God seems to mean throwing up and shooting yourself with a needle every day. I'm a diseased rat in a kind of cage. That's what he's made me into. I have no faith and no hope, and he has no love, only power. God is a symptom of power, nothing else. The hell with it. I give it up. I don't care. I'll do what I have to, but I'll, it will kill me and I know it. Okay? End quote. So um, you almost have this kind of Calvinist uh, logic of just the power of God and God is just... We're just kind of fulfilling God's God's plan, and, and we're not really free agents within it. This is a theme that's going to run throughout much of the novel. Um, and then the question is, which side do you choose in in this? And 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 kind of you know, do you do you embrace the divine or do you embrace kind of alternatives? But the only other alternative is Belial, the zone of evil, which of course is bad just by the way it's declared, right? Of course it's bad. The alternative is not much better, and I give Dick some credit for acknowledging that, but Ribus at this point in the story feels this great, great despair over, over her future. Um, so then we go back to the, the present, and Emmanuel you know, has realized with this, this word, this key word that's kind of awakened him up, he's realized what he is, and he begins to, and, and he remembers. It's actually all at once. He says, uh, Emmanuel realized, I now occupy the entire universe. I am now everywhere equally. Therefore, I've become Adam Cadman, the first man. Motion along the three special axes was impossible for him because he was already wherever he wished to go. The only possible motion for him or for the change in reality lay along the temporal axis. He sat contemplating the world of the polygons, billions of them in process, continuing growing and completing themselves driven on by the dialectic that underlay all transformation. It pleased him, the sight of the interconnected network, the Philegons. It was beautiful to behold. This was the cosmos of Pythagoras, the harmonious fitting together of all things, except in the right way, and each imperishable. So instead, in addition to also knowing what he is, he kind of understands the universe. And he understands the truth underlying the entire, entire universe. Um, now, unfortunately, this Emmanuel is a character we don't care about. He, he just kind of gets this knowledge. There's no struggle for it. Um, 
Xena just shows him a word and he, and he gets it. Um, there's the struggle to get Manny to Earth, as we'll see. But again, everything is predetermined by Yaw that they'll get there. So there's never any doubt that he'll get there. And, and you know, this, this is just one of the many disappointments in this particular novel. Um, so there's a whole section here of just Emmanuel kind of coming to know reality and knowing who he is. Uh, back in the past, uh, Ribus uh, is really fearing her journey. And one of her reasons she has a big fear is the Earth is totally controlled by an AI called the Big Noodle, which can keep tabs on everything. It can reform the government. And, it, it, you know, Dick has done this a lot of times. So this is not new in Dick's fiction. You know, the AI that, that can basically manage the, gov the day to day governance of Earth. He did it in Vulcan's Hammer, it's in the story of Holy Quarrel, um, and to a lesser degree in some other stories. So he knows about this, and here it's the Big Noodle. That is the Earth AI, and this is going to make it impossible for their mission to be successful. Essentially, they're on a suicide mission, in her view. Uh, then back to the present, Xena continues her work with Emmanuel, and Elias is also tutoring him. Uh, and they do discuss the problem of evil here, and I'm interested in the problem of evil. Uh, not because I, I, I think rereading is going to change my mind. I'm interested in the responses to it by, by Christians. And there's kind of, I think it's sort of a dream he has where he he sees a dead dog or a dying dog and he talks to the dying dog and the dog claims to have done nothing to deserve this death. And and Emmanuel kind of says, well, but you kill things. And he says, no, no, I'm blameless. My jaws were designed to kill. I was constructed to kill smaller things. And then Emmanuel says, okay, that, I, that's fine enough, but do you kill for joy or pleasure or for food? And he says, I kill out of joy. It's a game. It's the game I play. And this, of course, deepens the problem of evil because, you know, especially natural evil, right? Why is there suffering in the universe? Animal suffering, human suffering, natural disasters, all that stuff. Um, if it's just for necessity, you could say you can't do the Leibniz argument, right? That this is the best possible world and we can't do any better. Um, but if you add in there that these animals feel joy and pleasure at, at causing pain to others, then it seems that's a, it's kind of gratuitous addition to, to a necessity. Um, but this is this is all about the problem of evil here in this section. Um, then we go back to the past, and I, I think the, the time switching stops at, at this point. Um, <clears throat> so we're, we actually are introduced to Cardinal Fulton, who of the the head of the Christian Islamic Church, and this guy Bukowski, who is basically the, the head of the Communist Party or head of the state. Um, and they share rule over society. They kind of share rule, and they, got, they both kind of draw on the big noodle. It's kind of a co-emperor kind of situation where you got the religious and the secular cooperating. Uh, and so that's the... We don't get so much detail into the dystopia here. I'd like a bit more. But again, for Dick, it doesn't really matter because it's just a, an avatar of the, of the Black Iron Prison. It's just an extension of this. Um, so its actual details don't matter because it's not even real. Right? So... They get a warning from Big Noodle that this alien invasion is taking place. This baby is coming, and this baby is being coming is being delivered to Earth by Belial to disrupt Earth, to be a major disruptive force in, in Earth. And so Fulton and Bukowski, especially Bukowski, begins to mobilize the Earth's defenses in order to prevent this. So then we're kind of going to flip back to Ribus and Elias and Herb. They're on their way to Earth. Um, you know, Dick just sort of jumps to them suddenly moving on their way to Earth. And 
There's a lot of plot here, but essentially they evade every attempt to capture them or kill them by the powers on Earth. So the first idea is let's get them at the customs. doesn't work. Let's uh, just shoot them out of space. It's too late. Let's force her to have an abortion at the, at the port of entry. And that doesn't work because of some legal uh, luck they run into. Basically, they're all super lucky. So it's heavily implied that, that God is making it possible for them to escape. As this is happening, we get uh, a window into the mind of, of people like Buskowski, who is freaking out because basically the end of the world is coming in his view. Um, of course, he's, a, he's an agent of Belial, it seems. He's an agent of this evil state, and the state is part of the zone of evil. So he's Belial, and actually it's Yah, the good God that's sending, um, or the creator God that's sending Emmanuel to Earth. But they're being told it's, it's from Belial. So although they work for Belial, they think they're on the side of good. Uh, so they, they, are, they are confused. Uh, so then we have, uh, like for instance here, he's thinking about the future. He says, Armageddon, he pondered, the final battle between the sons of darkness and the sons of light, between Jehovah and what had the essence called that evil power? Belial? That was it. That was the term for Satan. Belial would lead the sons of darkness. Jehovah would lead the sons of light. This would be the seventh battle. There will be six battles, three of which the sons of light will win, and three of which the sons of darkness will win, leaving Belial in power. But then Jehovah himself takes command of what amounts to a tiebreaker. All right. So anyways, Belial or Emmanuel and his parents get through all the traps laid by Big Noodle and the state and Bukowski. And as, almost as soon as they, they're, they're, on, they're on Earth, an accident kills Ribus, uh, seriously injures Herb. So he has to be put in cryo for almost a decade. And the baby, the baby survives, though. Um, and he, he, he awakes 10 years later. Herb Asher awakes 10 years later and is told that his son uh, survived but was stolen by a man who fits Elias Tate's description. Okay, well, so we can assume he was stolen away by Elias Tate and then, of course, raised by Elias Tate and then sent to the school, as we saw in the opening scene of, of the novel. So he's all healed and he can go out now and find Emmanuel, hopefully. Now, meanwhile, Zena and Emmanuel continue to have their talks on theology. It, it's like they've been talking for years and they have nothing else to talk about except God. And it's, it's super boring. But um, th it seems she's preparing him about, about who he is and what his role is and all that kind of stuff. Uh, one thing they talk quite a lot about is, is the afterlife and the, I think it's the Egyptian or maybe some other Near Eastern tradition of, of judgment, right? So there's many different cultural interpretations of judgment, Right. And, you know, for some, you go to before the gate at St. Peter's and he pulls out the book. Right. And, and looks at your your sins. This is something he had fun with in a scanner darkly. It's taken much more seriously here. But in a scanner darkly, remember, um, there was this fear about dying because you'd be read your sins back to you. But that's kind of this this kind of 20th century Christian idea of, of, of the judgment. Right. Uh, which, of course, is an oversimplification or kind of a, a trite reading of, of this idea of, of judgment day. What else do we got? Uh, oh, the, the, the most interesting one and the one that Dick seems to like here is is the weighing of your heart, that your heart gets weighed and it's compared to a feather. And um, most people will fail this because the feather is so so light. So then you're forced to kind of go to an advocate. And, and, and that's kind of the leap of faith to embrace the advocate, to resist, to plead your innocence is to be doomed and to be damned. It's only, the only way you can save yourself is to uh, accept your your failings and your sins, and then to plead for just plead for plead for, plead on the court. 
Um, and, you know, Dick pulls that out. And that's essentially what's happened in the novel. We're, we're told here that this is the plot of the novel. And it turns out this story is all about the judgment of humanity. That's, that's really all it's all about at the end. So anyways, um, they're continuing to do that. They're continuing to have these theological talks. And eventually he's visited by her, her tracks him down. And Emmanuel sees him as a really passive model of humanity. He's not too impressed by his, his father. And, and Emmanuel's sort of in another place already in his mind uh, about, about who he is. Um, Emmanuel says, the phantasm is with us in this world. And Herb says, that's not my problem. And Emmanuel says, but it is mine. I mean to solve it. Not now, but at the proper time. You fell asleep, Herb Asher, because that voice told you to fall asleep. The world there, this planet, all of it, all of its people, everything here sleeps. I've watched it for 10 years and there's nothing good I can say about it. What you did, what you did, it does. What you are, it is. Maybe you still sleep. Do you sleep, Herb Asher? You dreamed about my mother while you lay in chronic suspension. I tapped your dreams. From them, I learned a lot about her. I'm as much her as I am myself. As I told her, she lives in me as, as me. I have made her deathless. Your wife is here, not back in that littered dome. Do you realize that? Look at me, and you see Ribus, whom you ignored. And the point here being that Emmanuel has already kind of moved beyond uh, the, the parental boundaries. Herb really has nothing to, no role in, in Emmanuel's development anymore. So he's kind of boxed out as a father. He's not a husband anymore. He did marry Ribus just for, for show uh, during their journey back to Earth. Um, but it's, you know, he doesn't really exist as a father anymore. And he's really disgusted kind of with humanity quite a lot through the novel, right? We got more on the nature of evil here too. Um, uh, again, it's Emmanuel just kind of reciting um, truths. The power of evil is the ceasing of reality, the ceasing of existence itself. It's the soul slipping away of everything that that is until it becomes like Linda Fox a phantasm. That process has begun. It began with the primal fall. Part of the cosmos fell away. The Godhead itself suffered a crisis. Can you fathom it, Herbasher? A crisis in the ground of being? What does that convey to you? The possibility of the Godhead ceasing? Does it convey to you that to you? Because the Godhead is all that stands between. You can't even imagine it. No creature can imagine non-being, especially its own non-being. I must guarantee being all being, including yours. A war is coming. We must choose our ground. It will be for us, the two of us, Belial and me, a table on which we play, over which we wager the universe, the being, the, the being of beings as such. I initiate this final part in the War of Ages. I have advanced into Belial's territory, his home. I have moved forward to meet him, not the other way around. Time will tell if that's a wise idea. Um, now, yeah, Herb Ash is going to have his moment to shine, if you will. In, in, a, in, a, in a sense, the climax is about him uh, choosing sides. But, um, you know, at this point, it just seems like Emmanuel's going to come and do, do the work, right? There's, there's no role for humanity in this story. There's no role for the common man. I mean, Dick's, Dick's um, signature character, right? The, the tinkerer, the repairman, who is, Herb Brasher is. I mean, he kind of, he installs speakers and things, but he's closer to that, is, is kind of marginalized. Um, humanity is just sort of there, diluted waiting for this savior from abroad to come. It's worse than our friends from Frolox 8, which has that same kind of motif, but at least there, there's issues of, of class, of movement cultures, of we see the reality on the ground, we see the suffering of common people, we see common people face authority and challenge authority. Um, 
you know, I may not like this Savior from Abroad narrative that much, but in Frolox 8, it's done in a way that that doesn't diminish humanity. This novel certainly does. I mean, Dick seems to have no faith in, in humanity to have to be an actor for its own own salvation at all. I mean, even in like the biblical or even a kind of the Christian morality tale, there's ground for someone pulling himself up, right? Um, this is kind of got a more Calvinist feel to me. Now, anyways, um, at, at this part in the story, Zena shows Emmanuel a parallel universe. And basically everyone moves into this parallel universe when it happens. And, and that world we've spent most of the novel getting used to, knowing it's been 11 over 20 chapters, we've been in kind of universe A, now we're in universe B. And universe B is better, right? And that's what Zena is showing him, showing him a better universe. It's almost presented like a temptation, um, like Christ tempting Jesus. But they stay in this better world for for a while. And it actually seems like the novel kind of says this this is all we need. We, we're in this other, better reality. I don't know if it's a real one. It's not clear to me. Zena says, you are here, Yahweh, so that I can postpone your great and terrible day. I do not want to see the world scourged. I want to see you to see what you do not see. Only the two of us are here. We are alone. Gradually, I will unfold my realm to you, and when I am done, you will withdraw your curse on the world. I have watched you for years now, and I have seen your dislike of the human race and your sense of worthlessness. I say to you, it's not worthless. It's not worthy to die, as you phrase it in your pompous fashion. The world is beautiful, and I am beautiful, and the cherry blossoms are beautiful. The robot teller at the savings and loans even is beautiful. The power of Belial is mere occult occlusion, hiding the real world. And if you attack the real world, as you have come to Earth to do, then you will destroy beauty and kindness and charm. And then she goes on and talk about the incident with the dog, the, the, the dead dog that likes to, likes to feast on suffering animals. And she says, that dog was wrongly treated, that he was born to suffer unjust pain. It is not Belial that slew the dog, it is you, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. Belial did not bring death into the world because there has always been death. Death goes back a billion years on this planet. And what became of that dog? That is the fate of every creature you have made. You cried over that dog, did you not? I think at that point you understood, but now you have forgotten. If I were to remind you of anything, I would remind you that that dog and how you felt. I would want you to remember how that dog showed you the way. It is the way of compassion, the most noble way of all. And I don't think you generally have that compassion. I really don't. You are here to destroy Belial, your adversary, not to emancipate mankind. You are here to wage war. End quote. Now there is some decent values here in that, you know, you know the the idea that war it's war can't bring positive outcomes right and that's that's obviously one of the lessons of of the 20th century of the difficulty of war to create positive outcomes it seems usually it makes things quite you know quite worse and certainly dick of the vietnam war generation would agree with that um but what essentially was happening in this this part of the novel is is zena showing him a better world the possible the possibility of a better world which would be a better foundation for compassion and where people can be happier than in the, the quote-unquote real world, which we're also told is not the real world, it's the zone of evil. So I don't know if we ever quite get a clear look at what's underneath the the zone of evil as the, the real world. And that's something that you know kind of bothers me about this, this novel. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there is a real world underneath all this, but I have a hard time seeing it. Now, Zena shows him this parallel universe um, and even like shows him Belial, who in this world is not a, a malevolent force that's, that's 
created in a zone of evil, but just uh, a goat in a zoo. And um, now then we shift to Herb Asher in this world. And now he's living, he's married to a living ribus and they have a decent marriage. Uh, although, you know, it's, 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 it's got its challenges. Um, now in this world, Elias Tate is a black man and he's a religious nut and Herb works installing speakers. Linda Fox in this world is also real. So in so many ways, this world is better, right? He's on earth. He's happier on earth. He's married instead of having a dead ribus. He's got a job that allows him to enjoy the music he loves so much. His, the, the musician he does love the most is a real person, not an artificial construct. The world is freer as well. And, um, you know, it's not ruled by the Christian Islamic Church. You just have the regular old Roman Catholic Church. It's not ruled by... Uh, an authoritarian communist party. The communist party in this world still exists, but it's just a movement culture in, in some societies. So this is, you know, if you think about the, the Leibniz argument, that like, this is the best possible world, right? Um, and then you think how easy it is to come up with a better world, a slightly better world than the one we live in. You know, and that's kind of what Zena's doing, but she makes it significantly better, not just a little bit better. So this, this world is, is superior to the one of the zone of evil of Belial. And... And so Zena's kind of offering another way out. But it's all kind of framed as kind of a temptation for, for poor Emmanuel. Now, Herb Asher eventually meets Linda Fox. It's actually through a dare. I think uh, Zena and Emmanuel dare him to write a fan letter to Linda Fox. And he finally does. Linda Fox replies because of his stationery or his letterhead, which says he works in speakers. And she wants to... She's got a new house and she wants a, a expensive speaker system installed in her house. So he goes to help her with that and, and he meets her and they eventually like, have a relationship together and they begin to fall in love. So that's another thing that's better. We get a short window into Bukowski, who now is not a dictator. He's just a regular uh, run-of-the-mill communist revolutionary. We got Cardinal Fulton, who's, you know, reduced to defending Christianity on TV despite the insults of a largely atheistic audience. Um, so we get just little snapshots of, of these people. And again, we're being told that this world is, is better. Uh, now, Emmanuel and Zena, they, they go to this zoo where Belial is, right, to visit him. And through kind of an act of, of benevolence, they release the animals from their cages. And in doing this, they release Belial from, from the cage. And Emmanuel feels great pity for Belial when he looks at him, which is what led him to that act of compassion. So this is what Zena wanted. Zena wanted him to, to act compassionately, not to just see Earth as a battleground and not just to see his job as war and, and, and to defeat Belial, but actually, you know, com compassion. And in doing that, though, he's released Belial in this, in this world. They actually have a nice um, conversation, which, of course, is, is basically a metaphor for us, all of us in the Black Iron Prison. Um, you know, again, it's not about us liberating ourselves. We are like zoo animals. Who the only way we can be freed is if someone unlocks the cage, right? So here we go. Um, Zena says this. Let's go look at the wolves. They're such beautiful animals, and we can ride the little train. We can visit all the animals and let them free. Emmanuel said, "Yes," she said, "and let them all of them free." Will Egypt always exist? He said. Will slavery always exist? Yes, Zena said, and so will we. As they approached the Stanley Zoo Park, Emmanuel said, The animals will be surprised by their freedom. At first, they won't know what to do. Then we'll teach them, Zena said, as we always have. What they know, what they've learned from us, we are their guide. So be it, he said, and placed his hand on the first metal cage. 
Within a small animal peered at him hesitantly. Emmanuel said, Come out of your cage. The animal trembling came to him, and he took it in his arms. Um, but the animal released from the cage is a, is a little goat, and it turns out to be Belial. And Belial says this, um, you know, well, Emmanuel realizes it's Belial, and Belial says, Welcome to my world. And Zena says, this is my world. And the goat says, not anymore. In your rush to free the prisoners, you have freed the greatest prisoner of all. I will contend against you, deity of light. I will come down into the caves where there is no light. Nothing of your radiance will shine now. The light has gone out and soon will. The game is up now. It's been a mock game in which you played against your own self. How can the deity of light lose when both sides of were portions of him? Now you face a true adversary. You who drew order out of chaos and drew me out of that order. I'll test the powers that you have. Already you have made a mistake. You freed me without knowing who I am. I have to tell you, your knowledge is not perfect. You can be surprised. Have I not surprised you? And now what happens is kind of the old universe kind of creeps back into this existence. So like one thing happens is um, like Herb Asher gets has an encounter with the police and the police say, well, you got a arrest warrant. And that arrest warrant is from his activities prior to, you know, early, earlier in the novel when he was trying to smuggle onto Earth. And, you know, so over time, we're kind of drifting back into that, that original world. So this kind of more perfect world that Zena created begins to, to fade away and, and that, that kind of corruption comes back into this, this world. Um, Emmanuel does pity Belial, but Belial seems to have the upper hand with his release. Um, so reality begins to shift, and, and we see this, as I suggested, as when Herb is found by the police. Um, and, and there's a warrant out for his arrest. And he begins to realize more and more what's going on. He, he understands things, again, because the old reality begins to filter back in. And he begins to explain to the cop how there's this cosmic war going on. And eventually he gets away from the cop. But, but the way he does it is basically by giving the, the madman's rant about um, the cosmic war that he's a part of and his liberty is, is key to, to that war. So... Um, he eventually says, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to give up on the fox because he was going off to see Linda Fox. I'm going to give up on the fox and, and, and see my partner. He's going to go to see Elias Tate, right? And, you know, they had talked earlier about kind of shifting realities and how things didn't seem right. But, but now Herb Asher knows that reality's fading away and, or unreality's coming back is the way you put it. So he explains this to, to Elijah and then they go on their way to the, the final um, Conflict. Eventually, it, it, it culminates, the climax of the novel is Herb and Belial discussing reality. And essentially, Belial sort of tempts, or really tempts Herb with the line that, that Yah's reality is corrupt. Yah's reality is not any good. And, and again, it's going back to these arguments of the problem of evil. And he explains why he's always able to defeat Yah or check Yah's power. And that's because, uh, quote, by revealing his creation for what it is, a wretched thing to be despised. This is his defeat, what you see. See through my mind and eyes, my vision of the world, my correct vision. Recall Ribus Romney's dome, the way it was when you first saw it. Remember what she was like. Consider what she is like now. Do you suppose that Linda Fox is any different? Or that you are any different? You are all the same. And when you saw the debris and spilled food and rotting matter of Ribus's dome, you saw how reality really is. You saw life. You saw the truth. Right. So he's saying, now that was unreality, right? Because that was Belial, he had the zone of, of evil. Uh, that's how Herb Asher describes the return to that existence as the return to unreality. Of course, we also know that Xena's world is not real either. So I don't, that's not really reality. 
So, I don't know. Like, I still don't see where the real reality behind all this is. It seems we're always, we're totally existing in alternate realities here. There's, there's no truth behind it. Um, so anyways, they're, they're talking about this. Um, they fight about the future. They fight about fate and, and all that kind of stuff. And then Linda Fox arrives. It turns out that she's some kind of avatar of God as well. She kills the goat. And then she explains to Herb Asher how she is his personal savior. And that by resisting Belial, he has embraced salvation. And, and that's basically how the novel ends. That's, um, it's, it's about Herb Asher's salvation, personal salvation, um, by giving a choice, right? Not the choice between reality or unreality, really, but the choice between Yaw and, and Belial, or the choice between good and evil, if you want to simplify it. But it's not really framed quite that way, because um, Yaw is, certainly is not good. There's so much evil in the world. We're constantly reminded of the evil in the world. So um, he just chooses, by resisting Belial, he's essentially chosen Yaw, it seems, braced his salvation, and, and that's how the novel end um so that's that obviously i'm not a big fan of this novel but I'm, i am gonna try to um go in as much as i can into its core concepts and themes and and what i think of the good and the bad of the novel is in, in the in the remainder of this episode but i do want to take some time to compare this to another novel that that you might be tempted to compare it to and that is the cosmic puppets um, because in the cosmic puppets you have two gods an evil and a good god kind of fighting it out uh, and they're fighting it out in the realm of, of what is reality right and that's happening here too right you have Belial and you have Yaw and you have Emmanuel and they're sort of battling it out in the realm of reality you know what is reality that's the that's kind of the playground and then humans get kind of dragged along the difference is is the much deeper humanism of a co the cosmic puppets than this novel. This novel is, I don't want to go so far as to say it's anti-humanist, but humanity is presented in such a bad light um, and so passive, so there's passive, weak, uh, deluded, um, uh, gullible, um, corrupted, uh, and just just kind of vicious. That that's that's Dick's vision of humanity in there. In the cosmic puppets, humanity is entrapped and their minds are sort of enslaved by by what the gods have done but they struggle they 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 struggle to remember they organize the they're the wanderers in that novel the ones kind of from the old world who who begin to try to reconstruct their their world in their own terms they initiate the final conflict they're they're the real actors here the gods are just kind of setting up the the game and then humans kind of transform the reality on the ground and that's true in a lot of his shifting reality novels that he wrote in the late 50s and early 60s, where there is such an emphasis on human agency in, the, in these. And in this novel, he just doesn't really doesn't do it for him anymore, for whatever reason. And he just wants to talk about theology and use these characters to kind of engage in different discussions. Um, now, maybe uh, Dick likes talking about theology with people and, and having these conversations and, and maybe they are fun to have and meaningful to have at time to time. I don't want to read about them over the course of two novels um, that basically try to tell the same story that both show humanity failing, that don't, you know, where we, we're deluded at the beginning and we're deluded at the end in both of these novels. Um, now, maybe one person gets saved, right? Herb Asher is saved. Now, it's implied that everyone kind of goes through the same choice, right? 
yeah, through salvation. Maybe it's a judgment day, so we're finally finally done with this. But um, I don't know. I, I I don't find too much appealing in it. I find he he was better on these themes when he made them stories about humans struggling with 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 forces around them rather than gods kind of pulling people along. But anyways, uh, so let's talk about some of the core concepts in this this story. So with Invalis, you, you sort of have more of a, a systematic theology, at least as systematic as Dick is going to get. He kind of gives you his selections of exegesis in order. He includes them in the text, so you can kind of go step by step. It's a little bit harder to, to, to eke out the core theological concepts in the divine invasion, although he is building on Invalis, so you can kind of take everything from Vallis into this one. Um, but I wrote down seven things. Some of these are interrelated, but seven main things that are kind of theologically significant about the divine invasion. The first is the concept of, of a savior. Uh, that, of course, runs throughout Vallis as well. The whole point of that novel is this kind of looking for a savior. Here, the savior comes, you know, from, from abroad, you know, in the womb of, of, of Ribus. Um, but yeah, the, the need for a savior to kind of lift humanity from its its delusion. Uh, a second theological concept that's pretty important here is just the general nature of the world. And and here we, um, you know, is it a, is it a, is it fake, and is it inadequate? You know, this I guess this really combines with the next thing I wrote down here, which uh, I guess there's really only six main theological concepts if you if you kind of group these together. But that's um. You know, if the world is inadequate, why is it inadequate? And, and, you know, although it's never mentioned directly, what's really hanging over this is the Leibniz's idea of the best possible world, right? And that's his, his response to the problem of evil, which is God has created the best possible world and that a better world isn't even, even conceivable. Um, and, and okay, um, that's played with here. Of course, Belial says, just rejects that out of hand and says, no, Yahweh, Yah has given us the if not the worst possible world, like a world that, that could easily be better, right? And the fact that you have Xena kind of recreating the world into a new new kind of uh, form uh, for to show Emmanuel and these other people live in it, and it's a better world, shows you that, that there is this possibility for a better world. Taken politically, I think this can be powerful. As a, as a theological concept, I think it's, it's, it's kind of vapid for me. Um, yeah, because if, if it's in God's hands or it's in the hands of the supernatural, whether we live in a better world or not, there's not much we can do, right? But politically, that's a very important thing. You know, if, if you have this kind of Fukuyama idea of, of the best possible worlds, liberal, neoliberal capitalism being the best possible world, or um, Thatcher's, there's no alternative. You know, of course, if you can imagine better alternatives and then, and then demonstrate that those things you can imagine can be possible, that, that's very, very powerful, I think. And that's why I think utopia is still a very, very relevant genre for us. But... Dick doesn't want to give us a utopia. Dick, I don't think, ever really gives us a utopia in any of his work. Maybe in a few short stories there's hints of it. And, yeah, I, I think I would like to see a Philip Dick utopia if, if he had written it. But that's not really in his DNA, I guess, to, to write that kind of thing. But anyways, that's the second major theological issue. And we'll combine that with uh, this best possible world idea. It's just what is the nature of, of the world? Is it fake? Um, and is it inadequate in some way? Uh, then we have the Black Iron Prison idea. That's also carried over from Vallis. The whole here it's talked about as the zone of evil uh, over which Belial, you know, imprisons the earth. The fact that the Black Iron Prison is combined with false realities and a you know a pretty horrible political system 
is, is, is of course, uh, something we take for granted. Or this idea that even a worse reality is underneath uh, our already horrible reality. That's sometimes, uh, that's in Vallis too. Um, next, we'll have the problem of evil. The problem of evil, um, of course, that ties to the best possible worlds as well. So this is really a novel about the problem of evil, I think, um, at the end of the day. Um, but there's a lot of conversations about the problem of evil in various ways, right? Natural suffering, um, the joy that a dog feels in, in killing its, its prey, uh, the suffering of a dog when it dies. All these things are, are, are explored. In, in, the, in the novel in various ways. So there's a lot of conversations that in one way or another get to the problem of evil. Um, and then we got uh, salvation. Uh, the whole novel kind of in the climax is revealed to be a, a personal salvation story for Herb Asher. And he's given a choice between accepting Belial or accepting Yah. And he chooses, uh, he rejects Belial. So that's his, his great moment. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion of different salvation stories, the struggle for good and evil, the one way we have to surrender to our sin, for instance, accept our sin and accept salvation. You know, all this Christian theology is, 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 is in that. Um, but yeah, salvation is part of it. But I really like, the one thing I did like is when he gets off of his kind of weird theology and talks about um, like the Egyptians and this measuring of the heart with the feather. That's kind of uh, interesting stuff. I, I don't really want it in a... a a, a metaphor for the whole plot, though, um, but it's it's kind of interesting. Um, and then finally, I think another core religious concept here is the, the subjective divine experience. And this again is tied to salvation. We're we're sort of suggested at the end that Herb Asher's experience is for him alone, and other people will have their own uh, kind of uh, salvation struggle. Um, and of course, this ties all the way back to Valus, where where Dick or Horse Silver Fett gets this divine revelation, and he has to make sense of it, and and then he kind of goes on his own personal quest to you know to to find a savior, um, and that's all very subjective. He tries to communicate with others, but it's it's very difficult for him, and they don't really understand because everyone comes at religion with their own problems. Like if you think of Valus, that guy with this dead cat, he's obsessed with the problem of evil. Um, Dick was obsessed with knowledge, right, and 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 truth. So there's different ways people get at these theological questions, and that's kind of leads to these subjective experiences. And the whole novel then kind of comes off as that way. Um, so those are some of the core religious concepts in the, in the novel, and I'm sure there's more. It's, it's, it's kind of a densely packed book in this way. I'm just the kind of person who, you know, after the 20th conversation between two characters about, about religion, I just kind of check out. There, there's a reason the one... Uh, Film adaptation of of the Vallis trilogy is Radio Free Album Myth because that's actually a story. That's actually got a plot and it's actually got like a fully developed context. It's not just people talking all the time. These would be very boring to to film, I, I would think. All right, the good and the bad. Uh, um, this is kind of like the closest I'll get to a formal review of this. My my overall feeling is not recommended um, unless you really really like you know the Vallis or something. Anyone that can. You like this kind of dick going off on religion in this way. Um, but yeah, the bad. Uh, Philip K. Dick's Gnosticism is, is a big part of the bad here. It's um, it's just not presented clearly. It's not interesting. Um, it's it's not really that good of sci-fi. It's just, it's it's like Val is self-indulgent. It's his theological um, obsessions imposed on the reader. And unless you have those same questions and, and, and thoughts, 
If you think the pink beam was a real thing and you think there's some truth behind all this stuff, maybe you like it. But for most people who read this, I think it's just the. Um, but the characters are bland too. That's more of the bad. The characters are all bland, forgettable. I, I have the time forget Herb Asher's name. Um, Elias Tate is probably the most interesting character here. Linda Fox as well. But at the end of the day, these characters are all avatars. They're they're all revealed to be um, parts of the divine or aspects of the supernatural. Or you know, uh, you know, everything is kind of controlled from outside. They they don't have character arcs. They don't have really personalities. They're just there to serve this this um, fable. Uh, maybe it's a fable. Maybe that's the best way to think of this. It's not even like a, a, a standard kind of religious quest kind of novel because you don't really see the characters struggling with their fate that much. It's, it's just, they're just being pulled along. Um, maybe Emmanuel a little bit, but he's the most boring character of all. I mean, Emmanuel, but then he, like, he doesn't really go through anything. He's just, a switch is flipped on, right? Xena just flips, shows him a word, and suddenly he knows who he is. And we pick up a few years later, and he's, like, fully realized as a, as a, as a spiritual being. Um, the obvious Jesus story parallel is, is kind of cringeworthy in my view. It's, it's so clear. Anyone who, like, even if you just went to Sunday school, you know this story. You don't need it retold this way. And if you're going to do a kind of a religious parable, you know, you don't have to ham fist it so much with the virgin birth and the, 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 the king or the leader is trying to kill the baby because he's a threat. Um, you know, Dick changes a few things around, but it's, it's really the, you know, the adopted father, right? Um, like, uh, Herb Asher is, is Joseph. Uh, I guess the difference Mary doesn't die in the Jesus story. but So that's kind of, I, 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 I don't like, I just found that kind of too obvious and cringeworthy. To, it pulls me out of the story. A lot of things pull me out of the story, but that especially. Uh, weak dystopia, yeah. The Probably where you had a chance to do something really interesting was in this dystopia. The, the Christian Islamic Church, the Communist Party, all kind of unified in a rule. You got the dual emperors like the Roman Empire. So definitely Dick was playing with the Roman Empire idea. But he doesn't have time or interest in really developing this world. All we know is that they have an AI. Um, and there's something, some kind of unity between the Communist Party and the church. Um, and that'd be interesting. He did a little of that in the black box where you had kind of a Buddhist church in, commun in, in a communist society uh, kind of joined together and working together. I mean, that could be fully developed into a whole novel. That'd be a lot more interesting than anything. think this. If you really want to deal with religion and, and politics, that'd be fascinating to actually, because, you know, he did moral reclamation way back with The Man Who Japed, but maybe a, a more mature version of something like moral reclamation really grounded in the trends of of the late of, of the 70s and 80s to growing a religious revivalism around the world combined with late capitalism um, you know that's kind of the novel I would like to see see Dick Wright um, you know a very different religious climate than in the 50s by the 70s and early 80s but he didn't write that he, he, he just gives us a snapshot of something that's just there again just to have a bad guy to try to catch that's really the only reason they're there. The only reason you have a state at all looked at is because you need someone to try to catch Ribus and the baby. Uh, he reintroduces them in the second half of the story when the reality shifts, and then they're just shown as kind of pathetic, uh, um, low-level people in, in larger institutions. All right, what's the good here? Well, some of the interactions are good. I think Elias and Herb 
Um, Asher, both Elias when he is an old black man and, and the previous when he's a, he's white are, are good, especially the second part when he, when Elias is transformed as a black man and a religious nut and Herb Asher is the, is the sound expert and they're talking about putting on a radio show with his weird ideas, even though Elias Tate's theology in the second half is really lame. It's just, oh, God's coming back, the end, ends the nigh kind of stuff. But when they sit down for like with a beer and, and talk about what's going on and the, the way the world feels weird... Um, you know, that's that's some good stuff. Same thing with Herb and Linda Fox. That's as good as any of Dick's kind of developing relationships. Um, the way they, they, how they, how they meet, uh, the chance meeting, uh, their professional relationship, and then how that morphs into a romantic relationship was, was well done, I, I think. That's one of the, the high points of, of the novel, especially in the later half. And actually, pretty much any time they're not talking about theology, when they're talking about even other things, even like the... To go back to the state stuff, even though I think that's a poorly developed structure, when Bukowski is, is struggling with the bureaucracy, trying to get it to organize to stop um, Ribus and, and Herb Asher and these people, and the, the system's not working with him, and he's frustrated, and, and he's calling the people, and people are sleeping in. There's some really fun stuff with that, and you know that's that's nicely done. It shows the potential for a, for a more interesting story about those guys. Kind of the way uh, Frolox 8, some of the high points, was the interactions between government functionaries. So, yeah, I think anything that's not religious conversations is, is not bad here. It's just that's, that's only a 10% of the novel. It's 90% of the novel is, is gobbledygook. And yeah, uh, respond to me all you want and say why I'm wrong. Say why I'm an idiot for, for not understanding Gnosticism, but... I've read a lot of books. I've read theology. I've read Calvin. So it's, I, I don't think it's me. I think the way it's presented here is just bad. And it could be better. And, you know, I don't want to downplay what happened to him in 74. For him, it was a real experience. He obviously took it very seriously. Now, that's fine. People have things that happen to them that they have to analyze and understand. And that's why we have therapists. And that's why... Um, you know, that's, that's why we help people who have mental illness or physiological problems that affect their psychology. But you don't have to impose it on, on the readers this way. And I, I guess I didn't have to pick up this book either. So that, that, that's on me. At least that part's on me. So he can write what he wants, I suppose. But I can, I can say it's not a good book. Um, all right. Uh, finally, other themes. Uh, there's some interesting commentary and consumption in, in the novel. I'll give you one. And, and kind of religion as consumption is, is, is here as well. Um, this was right at the end of the novel. Quote, they're all asleep and on, or on tape, he thought. And when you manage to get them to say something, they tell you it's no good. The domain of Belial insinuates the paucity of value in everything. Great, just what we need. The only bright spot was the cop asking me to pray for him. Even Elias is acting erratically, suggesting that we buy an FM stereo for $30 million so we can tell people, well, whatever he's going to tell people on a par with selling them a home audio system and baptizing them as a bonus, like giving them a free stuffed animal, end quote. So religion just becomes another consumer device, which is something that he is going to, this is the theme he's going to do really well with in the transmigration of, of Timothy Archer, which unlike Vallis and the Divine Invasion is a good novel. Um, so there's other little hints of, of consumerism, not much, but, uh, but a few. Um, families here, of course, uh, you have the, 
the kind of constructed family of, of Ribus and, uh, and Herb Asher early on. You got the, the kind of Trinitarian family, I guess, with God and Joseph and Mary here. Um, and then Trinitarian, that's the wrong term for that, but uh, uh, the menage a trois of, of God, Joseph and Mary here with Yah, uh, Ribus and, and Herb Asher. And then I guess Elias is there too uh, as, as kind of the prophet. But later on, it's more interesting when he's actually married to Ribus and he starts having an affair. I mean, that's an old dick trope, and, and we never get bored of it. Um, he's, he's so good at that. He's so good at the adulterous family, the family broken up by, by the, other, the other woman or the other man. Um, some good frontier stuff, too. Uh, of course, uh, Herb Asher begins the novel out in the frontier, and he, he leaves it to come back. And then the second half of the novel, he's on Earth kind of pining for the frontier a little bit. And, and so he's a little, Dick's a little ambiguous about frontier, but um, I always got to point it out when he mentioned it, because I, I, again, I think that's one of the key Philip Dick uh, obsessions that, that very few people talk about, which is his frontier. It's, it's almost in every novel, uh, to some degree. You can go back to my recordings and, and see where I talk about the frontier as a theme. Probably 80% of his novels and, and a huge chunk of his stories deal with the frontier in some way. And I think we're still waiting for a good overall analysis of the frontier in Philip Dick's fiction. Or can I add to that his view of history? And, and maybe I'll pursue that someday to actually write down his overall philosophy of history. Um, we got the surveillance state here, too. We got the, the Big Noodle, which is an AI system that, that basically patrols the frontier, patrols the borders around Earth, tells the leaders what they need to do and know. And that, that's, an, again, an old idea of Dick's, but it's a good one. And it's relevant to us. And it's not really developed here. It's just kind of a throwaway device, but you know, it's something Dick has explored so many other times. He doesn't really need to uh, re-examine it. Um, the music stuff is good. I, I think Dick has his own obsessions with like John Dowland, and that's re repeated here uh, with certain types of music. And he feels that like I think he often feels that his music's not appreciated, or he knows what's best for music, and everyone else is kind of consumed by pop trash. And, and that's here too, right? The whole Linda Fox thing. Linda Fox would be like the un unappreciated artist, but appreciated by Herb Asher. And that's, that's key. And he's trying to help her career along because no one else really understands how great uh, Linda, Fox, Linda Fox is. Uh, and the fact that Linda Fox early on is a creation of the state is, I think, kind of interesting. And you think about the kind of is, is celebrity something that's manufactured by not the state, obviously, but by corporations. Certainly a lot of pop musicians are, their image is cultivated. They, um, they are who the recording studio says they should be, right? If they're supposed to be slutty or good-natured or whatever, right? So I guess Kesha, I, how, I don't really know this story very well, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember Kesha was supposed to be presented as kind of the, the tart, and then in real life she wasn't like that at all, and she actually felt quite mistreated, and she was mistreated. Uh, that's my understanding of the story. Yeah, she kind of had to cultivate this image. And meanwhile, you got like Taylor Swift, who's presented as the good girl. And I don't know her personal life, but, you know, whether that's real or not, I don't know. But uh, there, there's some gap between the, the presentation and the reality. And maybe we're not making up fake people, but, you know, their, their persona certainly is. We got some on animal rights here. Dick has an interest in animal rights. We got the whole scene with the zoo and compassion, uh, Emmanuel's compassion being revealed by releasing the animals from the zoo. We got the whole conversation with the, with the dog where Emmanuel's trying to have some empathy with the suffering of a dying dog. So compassion is tied to 
loving animals. Belial tricks people by presenting himself as a goat, as a cute little goat, when in fact he's evil. Um, and then we got a little bit on new religious movements, particularly, again, this is something that isn't developed, but would be really fascinating, is this Christian Islamic church idea. Um, Dick definitely laid in his career is interested in new religious movements. Uh, it's really the whole theme of transmigration of Timothy Archer. And it's played with a little bit here with the uh, Christian Islamic Church, especially in the second part of the novel where we get we see them more as an insurgent movement when, when these religions are just beginning. So those are some of the other themes I think are in Divine Invasion, but I don't really want to talk anymore about this, this, this novel. It's, it's a hard one for me. It's, it, I find it frustrating. I don't like it, and I'm, I'm kind of glad to be done with it. So that's it. If, if this is one of your favorite and you feel I'm giving it short, um, uh, short changing it, Tell me why. Uh, leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pages, 100pagescast at uh, gmail.com. Uh, thanks as always for listening and supporting this podcast. Um, we're done now with Dick's uh, the novels Dick wrote during his lifetime. So we're officially into the posthumous writings. Now, I am going to uh, do Transmigration of Timothy Archer and Radio Free Albermeth because they're tied to the Vallis trilogy. Um, now, Divine Invasion is, for all intents and purposes, kind of published during his lifetime. It was set for publication. He died, and then it came out very shortly after. Um, the, I think Raiders for Album is, is a true posthumous novel in the sense that, you know, the estate picked up this manuscript and had it published later. Um, but it's so tied to Valis, we should look at it. And, and that's going to be the, uh, the end of the Philip K. Dick, Club, uh, Philip K. Dick Book Club for now. Uh, the other posthumous works will, will be on the back burner. Um, and I also got to do Ganymede Takeover. So I'll talk about that after I finish up with Radio Field Album with where this podcast is going to go in the future. Uh, but there'll definitely be a, a break. So two more episodes, uh, both also probably one-offs, uh, uh, maybe a little bit longer than this one. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Uh, so we'll start with Transmigration of Timothy Archer next. And then Radio Free Album Myth. So thanks as always for listening. Um, if you're reading along, pick up Transmigration of Timothy Archer. And, and read the whole thing before my next episode's up. Uh, thanks for listening. See you next time.